between the wisdom passed down by ancient healing traditions, anecdotal experience, and modern clinical trials, one thing is clear. Mushrooms are medicinal powerhouses. And I finally found a brand, a product, a company that I feel really aligns with all of my research and understanding when it comes to the medicinal properties of mushrooms, and that is Alchemy Mushrooms. They grow their mushrooms in California on organic mushroom farms. They keep the whole mushroom in their supplements, and they actually blend mycelium and fruit body in their mushroom powders and capsules to give you the best of both worlds. You can learn more at Alchemy Mushrooms. That's A-L-C-H-E-M-I, alchemymushrooms.com. Use the discount code MUSHROOMHOUR for 20% off your order. Alchemy with an I, mushrooms.com. Hi there. Welcome to Mushroom Hour. Today on Mushroom Hour, we're excited to interview mushroom cultivating artist, Sam Shoemaker. Sam is an interdisciplinary artist and mycologist based in Los Angeles, California. His recent artistic work stems from an ongoing collaboration with rare native and medicinal fungi. After receiving his MFA from Yale University in 2020, Sam founded the urban mushroom farm Myco Myco from his underground laboratory in Los Angeles, California. His obsession with mushrooms led Sam to some unconventional cultivation projects. These projects produced interesting results, which led him to ask questions about how mushrooms can be used. And when nobody seemed to be able to answer those questions, he just kept going, doing more experiments, taking the science as far as he could, and trying things out for himself. Approaching mycology through the lens of an artist, Sam explores the tremendous amount of creative opportunity surrounding mycology. His aim is simple and beautiful, making mycology accessible to all and encouraging people to embrace the unknowable. Sam, thank you so much for joining us on the Mushroom Hour. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm a huge fan of your work. Uh, as most of us, when we see artwork created by a living thing, a mushroom growing into an amazing form, it's kind of mind blown. There's an amazing interest in that. So I'm excited to learn about the man behind the creations and what goes into that. But to kick us off, I kind of want to hear the origin of Sam, the mycology artist, mad scientist. Uh, tell us maybe the path that led you into art, mycology, if those were parallel or sequential, and how they ended up uniting. When I was a kid, my um, grandmother tried to get me to paint with her. So she paints still lifes, and that was really my introduction to art. The problem was that I was a pretty squirrely kid, and it was hard for me to sit still for prolonged periods of time. So, you know, that didn't go very far, but she had all these art catalogs around the house, and she really hated modern paintings. So, you know, the Rothkos, the Paul Klees, Louis Bourgeois, Moreau, and even Picasso were kind of forbidden fruit. And, uh, you know, as a rule, if you want kids to pay attention to something and get them really interested in something, you tell them not to pay attention to those things. So, you know, uh, not because I had this refined aesthetic sensibility, <laughs> but I, I, I really embraced abstraction and even monochromatic painting at a very young age to just sort of get a reaction and arise out of my grandmother, you know, who really, really didn't like this stuff. Um, you know, the mycologies came a bit later. I wasn't really very outdoorsy. My family didn't hike. 
you know, none of that. I love my family. We share very different worldviews. They're not very outdoorsy people. I also grew up in Central Florida where we don't have a lot of the privileges that we have in California. You could just sort of embrace by mother nature and have a picnic and the ants don't really bite. You know, in Florida, there's alligators, bugs. So, you know, we, we would roam the swamps, but it's not the kind of place where you spend a lot of time in the muck. And, you know, I, I was not really confident exploring those things until a later age. And when I moved to California, things are a bit user friendly here. That's a funny perspective you don't think of. Florida's nature is a little bit more treacherous. Uh, so it doesn't necessarily lead you to go out foraging in the woods for for wild food per se. And I guess what- I always think about that Werner Herzog, that famous Werner Herzog clip where he's in the Amazonian rainforest. He's like, these are not the the cries of harmony. The harmony does not exist. This is uh, <laughs> systematic murder. This is this is the cries of competition and and that, that's very much Florida. It's it is a it a harsh, cutthroat environment. The cries of murdering competition potentially. But then when when did you decide to look into mushrooms? I mean, what got you interested in these organisms? I know there's kind of a tidal wave that swept up people like myself and many others in the past decade or two. Uh, but what what caught your interest? What what made you fall in love with mushrooms? I picked up a copy of David Aurora's All at the Rain Promises to uh, Bring in More. I think I get that title right. Um, classic. A classic but, uh, All the Rain Promises and More. Yes. David Aurora with his mushrooms and his trumpet or French horn. Yeah, that cover has done so much for the mycology community. But I, that that book created more problems for me than it really offered. So I, I would go hiking looking for these beautiful, colorful mushrooms in that book. And in Southern California and LA, you know, you don't really find chanterelles and burn morels um, in the chaparral here. But I had a studio down the street from the Los Angeles Mycological Society. And this is before mushrooms had become more mainstream. So I would go there and there might have been three other people in any given week that were under the age of 50. And I loved it. I would go and every month, you know, I'd get a break from the studio to sit in the back of the Natural History Museum and this auditorium and listen to people talk about all this new science and you know these uc biology and science professors just get giddy with excitement so you know the mushroom obsession started long before i started cultivating and at some point someone said hey you know this guy peter mccoy is coming through town peter mccoy of radical mycology and there's this cultivation class so I didn't have any plans of cultivating and I think that was 2016. So I took his class. This is before the radical mycology book had even come out. And at the time I said, I, you know, this is, I don't have space for a clean room and invest in a pressure cooker. So I sort of put the book that he gave all of us on the back burner. And I, I thought it was really exciting, but it took me long to come back for that. But yeah, I, I also, you know, I love John Cage flux. There's this sort of art connection. There's a lot of artists Today, there are a lot of mycologists who have a background in the arts, and there's a lot of artists who are interested in mushrooms. There's a lot of crossover. I think that's just the nature of mushrooms being a bit mysterious, and the science is really spearheaded by tinkers and autodidacts and you know people who really take interest in the marginal kind of subject matter. Yeah, you find that a lot, that it seems like somehow mushrooms, these enigmatic organisms speak to those with an artistic sensibility, but not everyone decides to grow mushrooms into art. 
I mean, plenty of people make mushrooms inspired by art. Plenty of artists dabble in mycology. But what was the first, maybe there's like a seminal moment when you decided that you were going to make an art piece with mushrooms as kind of an add-on to that. Did this idea for you carry over any of that kind of modernist aesthetic born of kind of grandma's words of warning, you know, did, did any of that come into play? And what was that seminal moment when you decided to make art with mushrooms? It wasn't entirely out of the blue before mushrooms. I was exploring other ways of having a durational objects in my studio. So I, I was making these bird seed sculptures and trying to lure birds into galleries to sort of feed and, and poop on the things that I was making or, <laughs> That's awesome. You know, I, I had one installation with caterpillars that were eating flowers and cocooning on these resin sculptures I was making. So, you know, starting to think about how a piece could carry rhythm and change over time and maybe look very different from the day that it opens, from the day that it comes down. And, you know, rather than the mushroom or the Freudian slip there, uh, rather than the artwork existing as this kind of discrete object that sits on a pedestal as something that's alive and has behavior and is non-human and a bit out of my control. That, that's always interests me. And I'm not the only contemporary artist who's starting to think about this. Over the past couple decades, you start to see the shift. This French artist, Pierre Huy, is a big influence of, me and, of mine and a famous uh, contemporary artist who you know, has beehives growing off of stone sculptures. There's cancer cells grafted onto the floors of his insulation and peacocks running around, these dogs and literally moving things out of the museum and into these kind of uh, mud pits and municipal parks where we can sort of have this alternative experience with art. Another artist really influenced me, Candace Lynn, based here in LA, shows that Francois Gabali, who has really, really interesting work. Um, you'll see the mud and elixirs that are distilling and opium and poisonous plants from her ethnographic research of sort of colonial histories that feed into her work. And I, I really love this one called, uh, this one piece where she created a, a piece called Hormonal Fog, which is a, a fog machine loaded with testosterone lowering tinctures or blasts at our audience. So th there's a long and rich history of artists who are experimenting with other ways that we can experience art and the way that the art can sort of uh, take on these other lives other than just uh, something visual or something we can take a picture of and just put on Instagram, uh, something very alive and performative. Well, we often marvel about how nature is some of the most beautiful artwork. I mean, obviously nature's creations, the living organisms all around us are these amazing pieces of art in and of themselves as many people over time have always been inspired by nature to make art pieces. It's like more and more, we're kind of just doing a direct translation, like nature and art kind of merging into one from what you're describing with some of those, some of those artists. Absolutely. I think that's one way that we can look at it. I think the singular voice is something that many people are very skeptical of and to have a work be this multifaceted constellation of different elements that might not always be biomimicry, but embody some sort of world building or ecosystem where, where different things can play off of each other. That, that can be much more dynamic and, and rich for me than 
you know, a painting on a wall. And not to knock, there are people who make incredible work painted on the wall. I'm not <laughs> saying it should, this should replace all art, but these are the things that interest me. And, and I'm quite excited when a work is able to have those levels of experience and offer something very different if I come return to an exhibition a week after, you know, the first encounter. So those, those are things that excite me. So following that trajectory of making art based on ecologies and involving nature, moving fluid, dynamic pieces, yeah, something that I think is intrinsically exciting to so many of us, if for, for no other reason than it is so much different than static art that seemingly has dominated that sphere for a long time. What was the first mushroom piece then? You know, what, what species did you decide to work with? What, what was that first piece or set of pieces or show uh, like? It started with mycomaterials, actually. I was familiar with Phil Ross. You know, when I was 25, I sent him a couple of embarrassing emails saying, hey, I'll quit my job and move up there. I can do this stuff. I, you can underpay me. Was, I think you're fascinating. And he never responded. But so I was aware of Phil Ross. And I and I was like, what is this mycomaterial? And, and I had gotten some jobs fabricating sculptures for their artists and made a lot of artwork myself with styrofoam and these just terrible materials that the foam beads and the, the resins. And I thought, oh, this mushroom eating an agricultural byproduct can replace the super destructive material fabrication. It's, it's, I, I want to know about that. So it really started from um, wanting to cast sculptures out of mushrooms. And it really set me on a course where I thought that I was going to do a couple of pieces after I figured out this really simple technology, which turned out to not be so simple. <laughs> and what happened is I created uh, 15 years of work for myself. You know, the questions that came up and I realized that people weren't able to answer my questions and I had all these ideas. And I said, why aren't we doing this? Has anybody tried this? And and then I just got really excited and um, really sidetracked. So it started with I was casting things with blue oyster at the time, really simple, I was ordering spawn bags from North Spore. And then I discovered Ryan Paul Gates of Terrestrial Fungi and the work that he was doing. And he was uh, speaking at the festival organized by another incredible mycologist, William Padilla Brown. And I thought, well, these are really cool. These, these Ganoderma, these reishi that a dry like wood. I was like, there's a lot of sculptural potential in that. And so I started to play with his cultures. And I thought that it would be really interesting to inoculate some of my sculptures with these cultures. And I thought, well, I don't want to use these myco bags for everything. You know, the myco bags are fine. They're really useful. They have these filters and they can uh, survive the sterilization process when I throw my blocks in the pressure cooker. Um, and the plastic doesn't melt, but there are lots of things that can survive these temperatures. You know, I'm sur around ceramicists all day. You know, can we take one of their glazed ceramic vessels and put the culture in there? And I was asking my ecologist, has anybody done this? And it seems, you know, we, we pop plants in ceramic bases. Like, why, are, why aren't we doing that with mushrooms? That's pretty, you know, don't we all hate plastic anyways? And, uh, you know, that, maybe there's a couple of examples out there, but nobody had really done that. So not scientific at all, very unexperienced <laughs> cultivator. I just was, you know, I was pouring spawn into the vases. I was taking colonized blocks and putting, and just trying everything, just figure out, and I, you know, a lot of it didn't work. I, I created vessels where the openings were too small and I'd suffocate the mushroom. They were too exposed and they would dry out. I mean, of course, contamination, there's all of these problems. And so I 
educated myself on mushroom cultivation and, and got obsessed and realized that there were a lot of alternative ways to do things. Um, and, and then they work. They, some people call them bonsai. That's not really word. That's not really my history or, or craft. I, I say vessels. Um, somebody asked me how these were different than chia pets. You know, if, if you want to call them chia pets, they're, they're mushroom chia pets. That's fine with me. I, I, I have no problem with that. I make chia pets. I, I make these ceramic vessels, and and I also have been trying with glass recently. So so that's been an ongoing project. Those are really, really satisfying and kind of feel like they hold a little universe in themselves. You have the thing that I made and then the sort of a life that is hosted and uh, birthed out of it, I guess. The dynamic interplay between man's creation and natural systems epitomized by that artwork. And it's so funny when you hear about people's cultivation journey, that's usually how it starts is they had questions. They started just trying things. I think that's great advice any of us can take away is if you want to get into working with mushrooms, working in cultivation, just start trying stuff. Like you can use best practices or not, or just start trying things that you want. And eventually it'll lead you down this path where you'll create this inborn drive to see what works and what doesn't naturally pick up more skills. And suddenly you'll kind of be before you know it deep on the path of cultivation. And I think that's really interesting using ceramic pots. And I'm hearing snippets of what could be, you know, a story from Phil Ross, who was also greatly inspired by Rishi and also went on his own kind of experimental cultivation journey. Uh, so even though he wouldn't take you on board as kind of a, a manservant to help run his mushroom projects, uh, you could definitely feel some of that influence in there. Well, then what kind of mushrooms are you using now? Because in the introduction, we hear about kind of rare and native, and we know you started with Blue Oyster, a great place for any cultivation related anything is to use oyster mushrooms. And yeah, you see Rishi, especially Ryan Paul Gates Rishi already looks like crazy works of art. So were there certain species you uh, settled onto? Do you have any favorites to work with when it comes to these pieces? Or do you use a little bit of everything? I fell in love with Ganoderma and Phomatopsis. These dense, woody bracket fungi are so versatile. And just materially, I, I love how they grow. I love how slow they are. They really capture time in a way that I find really elegant and interesting. I love the dried specimens. And so I didn't go into this looking to grow reishi and, and had never even used reishi supplements in my diet until I got into this. But um, I, I've tried them all. You know, you hear this a lot with my colleagues. There's too many cultures. People are sending me things now and I'm at a point now where I have to turn things away. But I'm always, it, recently a friend sent me pictures of this Ganoderma growing off of a, a palm tree, you know, how can you say no to that? I mean, what is such a strange host? Of course, palm trees aren't native to Southern California, so you can't call that a native. But, you know, also recognizing that there wasn't a lot of attention on fungi and mushrooms of Southern California. Shout out to James Oliver at Metabolic Studio, a friend of mine who's done a lot of work on this, and Mia Maltz and Daniel Stevenson, who have paid a lot of attention to the sort of Mediterranean climate that we live in. But I thought that these would be really useful. If some, if we start collecting these cultures, we could do things with the forest fires and remediation and toxified soil. And so that's where I'm starting to move uh, my work and collect things for both my, both my artwork and then also just my research to see 
how can these mushrooms be used? And um, I have more questions than answers. You know, remediation is really complicated. <laughs> you know, I think the sort of TED talk version is that we, you know, we can use mushrooms for all these things and clean up oil spills and, you know, break down asphalt and plastic. But that looks really different in St. Louis than it looks in Southern California. And developing practices that make sense for where I live are, are really, they require a lot of sensitivity and attention. And so that that's always on the back burner too. So just it's it's everything. It's 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 cordyceps sometimes. Right now I'm doing uh, I from Trad Cotter's uh, Mushroom Mountain Lab. I I, I have this jack o' lantern culture. So I'm going to see if I can document bioluminescence in my lab. A poisonous orange mushroom. You know, there's there's no reason I should be I should be growing this mushroom, but I am. They all interest me. They're all you know, even the mycorrhizal and things that I can't grow in my basement are are really interesting. And, you know, as someone who is working with these organisms, essentially growing these organisms, well, it sounds like both for art and then just for research purposes, how do you see this role, this interplay of roles between scientist kind of community or citizen scientist, amateur scientist, and your role as an artist? Talk about that interplay a little bit. And, you know, if there is a difference, if those are kind of the same thing and we don't always realize it. Talk about that because that's an, an interplay that I think fascinates all of us is like art and science. You know, it's a little bit of art. It's a little bit of science. How does that work for you? How does that interplay play out in your work? And just what are your thoughts around that? You know, we can fall into all kinds of cliche generalizations about both of these definitions. People have spent their entire lives trying to define science and art and, and where they intersect. And that definition grows every year. I would say there's a lot of times when science is a lot like art, and there's a lot of times when art is a lot like science, and there's a lot of crossover, and it's blurry, and some things do fall more into the art category and do fall more into the science category. I would say uh, art allows for a more expansive conversation, where it allows for zoom outs and contemplation, where maybe working in a lab and cataloging, you know, a hundred types of a mushroom variant or, or, or the sort of important, unsexy uh, <laughs> science work, the, the really important. So, you know, there's a lot of crossover. I, I like the definition of art that the conceptual artist Michael Asher gave, which is art is what artists make, um, sort of a, a cyclical logic. There. Yes, I love that. Um, but, you know, there, there was a point where I did recognize that the work that I wanted to make and the work that was exciting to me was so much in the doing and actually immersing myself into the practice of growing mushrooms and not just the sort of genre of mushrooms, making work about mushrooms, about how cool mushrooms are. You know, that's a way of working and a very effective way of working. But for me, I, I was really interested in, you know, seeing these things grow over time, that that conversation that I would have with them is where I would produce work. So it's a it's a nebulous definition. It's always being you know adjusted. Sometimes I'm not in the studio enough. Sometimes I'm too much in the studio and neglecting the mushrooms a little bit. So you, you go back and forth. But I love I'm, I'm drawn to artists who happen to be uh, cactus experts or people who um, cultivate you know rare succulents. These people who have sort of expansive practices outside that go far beyond the studio. These are people that I'm really drawn to that that aren't just making things for white walled galleries. You know, just, that really doesn't interest me as much. Well, and you're speaking to something that I find is that science and art are inexorable. I mean, those disciplines 
need to go together almost. And whether you're talking about, yeah, a scientist who's having to, one example is interpret genetic data. I've always heard it described as kind of an art to interpret what that phylogenetic data means and what it means about the species you're looking at. So that discipline of, yeah, being an artist, being someone who's looking more qualitatively, piecing together patterns, zooming out, has to be part of the toolkit of someone who is a quote unquote scientist. Meanwhile, someone who is an artist has to have quantified discipline, almost reductionist processes, whether it's mixing paints, deciding what strain of mushrooms to catalog and use. Like, so it just seems like these things never can really leave each other. They're, they're always attached. And so I appreciate you verbalizing it as someone who distinctly is kind of the blend of artists and scientists, uh, you know, very much so. It's, it, it's a really interesting dichotomy that I think gains so much more from for acknowledging the union of these two disciplines. Instead of seeing it as an oppositional relationship, these things need to go hand in hand for the kind of highest benefit to make some of the biggest changes and discoveries. Absolutely. And, you know, on a very superficial level, too, there's a lot of really cool shit happening in mycology. And, you know, artists are drawn to novel and new conversations. And so, you know, I'm not the only artist or contemporary artist that is interested in, in collaborating with mushrooms. And I think that's a great thing. It's, it makes a lot of sense. These are things that have seen rapid um, developments in our understanding of how they exist in the world and what we can do with them. So putting those in the hands of artists makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense. You know, and how much does like working with an organism, not just in cultivation, but in trying to have an artistic conversation with it, you know, a, a relationship you're keenly aware of and you're deriving meaning and trying to, to convey meaning with, you know, that's a very unique way to work with an organism. What does that teach you about it? Or how different of a relationship does that develop, do you think, you know, in trying to convey and play with meaning, partnering with another living organism? You can get stuck. You can get stuck sometimes. I will spend a week obsessing over filtration systems and HVAC. <laughs> and I will go to sleep thinking about CO2 parts per million and then realizing you know, what, what, why, you know, lose track of the creative process. And this happens all the time as somebody who's been around sort of fabrication and wood shops a lot that sometimes people spend a little too much time with the saws, you know, knowing how to fix the table saw and chop saw doesn't bring you closer to making interesting work. So, you know, you have to dial it in, but you know, if the mushrooms aren't doing what they're supposed to do, then the work isn't really successful either. So it, it is kind of going back and forth and it can be really frustrating. I have all kinds of projects that have just turned to mush or compost that did not make the Instagram feed. So yeah, it, it, it can be sidetracking sometimes. I like being able to talk with mycologists and talking with artists who know very little about mycology and, and mycologists know a little very about art. So, you know, I, I'm not exactly sure how to answer that question at this time. It, sometimes the balance is really, really off. Um, and I'll, I'll obsess over things that have nothing to do with my art. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds like it does lead you to having inarguably an intimate relationship gets developed with the fungi, even if you might lose sight of that or that relationship kind of gets out of balance, that, that art and science spectrum, you got to pull it back one way or another. 
And what's the response to your work been? I mean, we've talked about the work with the clay vessels or glass vessels growing mushrooms out of them. You just talked about being a bridge between artistic and mycological communities. What has the reception and feedback to this work been for you? So I'm going to take a step back in order to answer that question and, and say that for years, I, I tried to keep this mushroom obsession out of the studio because it was so exciting that I thought that I wouldn't be able to have any critical distance because I'm so excited. How could I make you know smart decisions in the studio and think critically about what I was doing if I'm just excited by every single thing? And at a certain point, I realized that I'm, so, I'm thinking about mushrooms all the time. I'm going to make work from them. Let's just see what happens. And what I learned is sounds so obvious, but instead of trying to craft these complex relationships that I'll have with an audience, I thought, well, I'm just going to do what's exciting to me. And people really respond to that. You know, just by nature of being excited, I think that conveys in the work. There's something that's uh, not easy to explain. It's, it's almost immaterial that, you know, if you put excitement into a piece, whether it's a great piece or not, people pick up on that. And you know, the vessels are great. These people like ceramic vessels. They fit on a tabletop and people are trying to know, what is that? Is that coral? Did you grow that underwater? You go, yeah, yeah, you know, this is this reishi in China. It's called the mushroom of immortality. You know, but I'm also doing all this other stuff. And then I can show them the things that aren't always becoming these cool art projects. So, you know, these actually are doing a lot on the soil. And I work with this native plant nursery. And then they start asking questions. So it's been great to pull people into the art who are interested in mushrooms and people who would only kind of think about the, the objects that sit on the table into the lab and say, hey, yeah, check out this, this mushroom I cloned from a parking lot the other day. So, you know, right now I, I'm developing things that will really take years to complete, but I love talking about it. I love sharing it. And, and I think the work has been successful in bringing people to this, this operation and this thing that I think is... Uh, so exciting and, and you know, um, inviting for, and accessible to other people who want to do different things. Art is an amazing form of outreach. And clearly, as someone who's now an ambassador for fungi in all their myriad forms and uses and roles in ecology that you've become, art is an amazing way to draw people into that world and to interact with people. I like that. I will say that even though these reishi sculptures are, I would say, as materials materially stable and archival as a lot of ephemeral materials that are used in the creation of artwork. You know, people buy artwork that's made from twigs and sticks and hay right, and all this, right. but people are, the mycophobia comes into art collection with some, every now and then, you know, I'm not somebody who sells a lot of art, but you know, I'll have collectors that reach out. Oh, I love that. It's so cool. And then I, you know, I tell them a bit about the piece and they, Oh, it's a, it's a real mushroom. I thought that was bronze or something. And then they won't just, I won't hear from them because people, you know, they're really, uh, they're quite scared of these living things. I expected that. But if it was made of wood, you know, which is also an organic material that <laughs> right. breaks down, they, they wouldn't. So, you know, it works against me as far as uh, people wanting to uh, invest materially. So that's why I've got to do some of this other stuff. Well, and now I'm curious, what's the substrate you use for the vessels? And yeah, is there upkeep, maintenance? How long do they last? All, all those kind of questions from kind of the practical art standpoint. So hardwood is the go-to for mushroom cultivation and kiln-dried pellets are the most convenient. I am trying to 
move things so I can I can source all my substrates locally. That's sort of the dream. So I, I've tried, I've done coffee grounds. I've I've fed art catalogs to my mushrooms and fruited mushrooms off of books. Sort of oh, shout out to Roger Rabbit of the Shroomery, who I would say really popularized those strategies. But um, you you hear about all of these substrates that you can use to grow mushrooms, and there's all of these you know pop science and excitement on the internet about mushrooms eating plastic and and how we can use all the coffee grounds that we're throwing away to grow mushrooms. But it, it can be very difficult to obtain some of those those substrates. So if you think about you know a bag of a block of mushrooms, if you filled that with used spent coffee grounds. That's a lot of coffee grounds. Um, so how many coffee shops am I going to need to partner with me to give me their stinky compost, assuming that they've disposed of it in a very clean and discreet way. And then I have to drive around LA and pick up all of those coffee grounds in order to farm mushrooms or grow my sculptures off of like that's nobody is doing that. So in theory, we can use these waste streams, but until we build systems and infrastructure in, in order to, you know, get these as a mushroom farmer or find wood shops that separate their wood so that the things like plywood that I can't use don't end up in the, you know, truckload that I can take back to my place and grow that mushrooms. Would be a so dream. Yeah. I can use anything, but there are, there are some things that don't work. You know, I've tried walnut and people have said, you know, don't use walnut. It's not good to eat things that are grown on walnut and, and mushrooms don't like it. Eucalyptus is, is a really hard thing to grow mushrooms on. Um, so there, there are some, things and I end up just using the oak pellets if I'm fully honest and I have them shipped in on pallets and then um, you know various levels of supplementation on wheat bran and master's mix with a soy byproduct is quite popular get some massive yields from that so I do that with the gourmets but the reishi they um, I'll say if anybody is growing reishi I would move to little to no supplementation for Mm. the best color and um fruiting bodies you actually stunt your fruiting bodies if you use too much supplementation and since they grow a lot longer they're less likely to be contaminated so that's advice it took me almost a year to figure that one out so (laughs) a little cultivation secret from an artist who works with these but also a proper farmer and mushroom cultivator talk about myco myco because we've been talking about your cultivation experiments obviously you're dropping some knowledge on experiential cultivation uh, but yeah, just tell us about starting the farm. I think it's just in the past year. You know, what what was the inspiration behind that? Starting a full on operation. This is a very new and small operation that I run out of my basement. It's no secret that most contemporary artists that you'll see on the internet and in your community are they they live off of their day jobs. You know, I've I've never made a living off of my artwork, and really don't expect that. I mean, it would be great to be in the studio all day, but I have day jobs. I'm I'm in the world and I, I've taught and I've, I've fabricated for other artists, but with this mushroom work, I thought, oh, well, I can, I can make this my day job. I'm already doing this and this will build upon the creative work and the research. You know, if I'm growing gourmets alongside all this and I, I saw a talk by Trad Cotter and he, you know, was presenting all this incredible um, research he's doing. I know he's been on the pod and at the end of his talk, he's going to throw in and he's like, yeah, my wife and I grow this many hundred pounds of gourmets in order to run this facility. I thought, oh, I, I can figure that out. You know, I don't know that much about farming and scaling, you know, gourmet production. So, you know, I tried it and I've learned a lot. It's very expensive to operate in LA and it's a lot of work. This is like 
really, um, I'm hoping that I can grow this to a point where I can have some help because I'm shoveling the, the sawdust, bringing things to the market and it's fun. It's nice to people, but it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work and, um, just kind of figuring out, you know, how this, this kind of mushroom operation can grow and, um, bring in more people and collaborations and connections with the Los Angeles community. I think there's a huge demand and interest in gourmets right now. People come to the farmer's market and they're like, can I take workshops? Can I, you know, what does this lines mean? What do I cook it with? Can you give me a kit to grow it? And, you know, I'll point them to people I can. Often I don't have enough to, you know, offer everything that people want here. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of interest and a lot of room for growth. And I'm sort of taking it as I go and trying to make this my employment for my partner and I. And that's one huge lesson learned is there's a latent hunger. Everyone is obsessed with mushrooms right now. You know, what were some other lessons that you learned, though, in just trying to get this started? Because it's kind of the dream of so many people that get into at-home cultivation, they get interested in mushrooms. It's a question most people get when they're interested in mushrooms or they wild forage or grow a little bit at home is you should make this into a business. You should grow mushrooms and sell it at the farmer's market. Uh, And I know a lot of us know now that cultivation ends up being an industry with lots of different parts, you know, not everyone makes their own spawn, not everyone keeps their own culture library. So you kind of have to pick what roles you're going to be in. So what are some of those lessons that you've learned from actually doing it and doing this now for a year? So I find that with the first attempt to cultivate mushrooms, you have a lot of success. Mushrooms are master uh, marketers and in order to bring you into the pyramid scheme that is mycology you get a freebie the first month of growing is so exciting that first lion's mane is so plump and perfect and you show all your friends and you take pictures of it and you're like i am really good at this but you'll meet chefs and you know if you bring a box of gourmet mushrooms to say hey i am starting mushroom farm and i am really good at this and they go, yeah, yeah, yeah. We there's been a lot of mushroom farms that have come and gone, and uh, we have a lot of trouble finding anybody that has consistent yield. So, getting to a place of consistency takes a lot of work. You can stumble in through crapshoot, get really, really good results, but to do the same operation again and again and again, and deal with contamination and all of the things that come with mushroom farming and intensive HVAC and scaling uh, is really difficult. I think a lot of us, there, there's a lot of optimism around the potential of mushrooms and we come in as lovers of permaculture and you know planet savers and we you know mushrooms are this great, we're gonna use these agricultural byproducts and then we're gonna compost it and we're gonna have this protein rich food alternative and farm things mushroom locally. And I believe all of those things, if I didn't believe in those things, I wouldn't be farming mushrooms locally, but there is, you know, there are limitations to this. You know, it's energy intensive to bring a facility to the temperatures that are required for mushroom farming. Um, it's a much lower carbon footprint than most of our industrial ag, but it's you in LA, I have to keep the temperatures like at sometimes usually below 70 degrees for most of my facility, you know, and, and then cycle in fresh air. You know, that's, that's um, summertime in LA. That's expensive. Yeah, you know, but, you know, there are other huge benefits that I um, use less than two gallons of water for every pound of mushrooms that I harvest. And in in a state where water is this, you know, worth its weight in gold um, and we're experiencing these extreme droughts where 
farming soy is 250 gallons of water. Almonds is some absurd number. And, and beef, I mean, 1,800 gallons of water for a pound of beef. You know, like we should be taking mushrooms really seriously. You know, mushrooms are really big. It could be a lot bigger. And, yeah. you know, I, I'm as a vegetarian, I'm really happy to see beyond burger and impossible meats on the market. But you can't beat fresh, locally grown produce. And Absolutely. as a protein alternative mushrooms make a lot of sense um but yeah i i just some of the uh the fantasy of kind of mushrooms solving all the world's problems have been uh maybe put into a more realistic perspective for me in all of this you know the the energy intensive part is something i'm very aware of pay attention to those temperature differentials like when your pulse dammit says that you need to keep you know things at 73 or lower that's real. <laughs> um, you you are, are not going to have good yields if you run your facility above 80. You know, just certain things, learning, stare. I'm a messy artist. Like, I, I didn't spend three days a week cleaning like I do now. So that came with a learning curve. I think for a lot of dirty hippie type and, and you know, drug cultivators, like, learning to, you know, sterilize <laughs> your surface and bring in the HEPA filters is not something that is, like, in your blood and vernacular going into this. So yeah, there, there's a lot of things I've learned. Um, just maintaining cultures. I would say the other thing too, for anybody who's getting into this is it's really hard to run what they call sort of a spore to store operation that we sort of think that, you know, it would be great. I'm going to, I'm going to make my own cultures or, or bring in these cultures on Petri dish and make my own spawn and, and make my own blocks and then farm and take it to the market. But uh, the people that do really well end up outsourcing a lot. Maybe seem like, oh, that's not real mushroom farming, but let's think about it. You know, does your tomato farmer make their own seeds? Do they package their own produce? Like agriculture requires teams of people and cycles and production levels in order to make this work effectively. And, and that's even on a sustainability level, like we have the most efficient systems when we are able to really dedicate operations to certain parts of this production. Absolutely. And you talk about consistency. Someone who specializes in making good cultures is going to make you a great culture that you can use every time. Someone who's making great spawn or, you know, all different parts of that process. Yeah. You start learning that, that not everyone can be vertically integrated and do each of those steps equally well. So yeah, it sounds like you've learned some really important lessons, maybe you've been grounded a little bit about our immediate expectations for what mushrooms can do. And the consistency thing I'm struck by as well, just as being kind of a hobby cultivator who usually I buy mushroom kits or get mushroom kits. You know, sometimes you'll think I've got this system dialed in, look at my little shelf with a fruiting tent on it. Look at these big flushes I'm getting. And like you're saying, that's just the mushrooms playing you into the pyramid scheme. And now you're going to cultivate and the next yield isn't as good. And you think, what did I do wrong? And yeah, you start realizing that there's there's a lot more that goes into making it consistent and you also have been hinting at the fact that mushrooms are hugely hugely popular right now this podcast is a symptom of that many people's interest in the last 10 years is due to people like paul stamets and other mycoevangelists making it seem really cool and selling us on the potential or not selling us enlightening us to the potentials and we all get really excited about it but you struck me with an interesting question before the show which is is that a good thing do you see that as kind of universally a good thing that mushrooms are really popular right now? I think it is, you know, a net positive, but that's not to say that we're going to lose some of the culture that we have now as, as this gets bigger and people are starting to see 
dollar signs, mm. people are really lowering up. And, and that's not always such a bad thing. You know, if you really want to bring micro material or some of this technology into the world, you know, the world that we live in, like, it's really hard to do that if you don't have, you know, invest lawyers and patents and all of this stuff. But that sort of citizen science, open source community, I think, is going to um, have an uphill battle ahead of it. <laughs> I think there's, you know, now it's not just people in their basement. You have sort of a biotech companies that are farming psilocybin and and right. um, it's not such this counterculture anymore. And so that's going to have this sort of existential identity crisis for a lot of mycologists who really saw themselves as this kind of counterculture. But, you know, I think that all is a net positive, you know, making this more accessible, you know, seeing a variety of edible mushrooms available at our markets and as a, as a sustainable food system for our urbanized world is, is a good thing. You know, seeing more institutional funding for research related to fungi is really great. I, I just don't think people realize how small this community really is. It seems really big. And yes, there's fantastic fungi, but we don't have a university department that has a department fully dedicated to mycology. I mean, there you have Penn State and, and places that are studying mushrooms, but the people that are leading this research have really had to fight you know, against expectations and, and really fight to um, get people to take this stuff seriously. Like we don't really know much about how climate change has affected our wild uh, mushroom varieties. There's so many question marks of how we can do all of this. So I'm so excited to see this go further. I think we're just scratching the surface. But yeah, I think I think we are going to see capitalism kind of mess with things a little bit. I mean, it's definitely happening in the psychedelic world, but I think it's going to happen with gourmet mushrooms too. I think it's going to get to a place where you're going to have bottle farms um, making lion's mane and these gourmet varieties at a very large scale. You know, it's going to be harder for your local farmer to compete with that. But, you know, I think we have, we'll just have both. Yeah. I think everyone feels that, that as this thing balloons out, it's it more and more mainstream it's not really the domain of the mycelium underground or the myco counterculture. And I think that happens with so many things where it is those who are kind of on the fringes or pioneers on the leading edge or that get interested in some game-changing enigmatic topic. And then everyone else floods into it and starts displacing those kind of early adopters and pioneers and mavericks that kind of pushed us into that arena in the first place. And I think that definitely is going to happen with mushrooms. I talk about this question a lot with people in the mycology community. It's just the idea that this is a, a queendom, a kingdom of life. I mean, there is no, everyone's going to mediate their own relationship with mushrooms and fungi. It's not really as much as we want it to be our domain. It's like that band that you discovered. It's like everyone's going to realize how amazing they are. Everyone's going to have their own relationship and do their own thing. And uh, I think though there is that word of caution about, yeah, letting huge industrialized mega titans come over and take it over and fence other people out to where those mavericks and creators and people are suddenly kind of on the outside of that scene or, or that industry and it gets really sterilized and sanitized so yeah it's something interesting to to look out for and i had a feeling we might get into that realm with your question but i think it's something that's going to come to the fore more and more in the next 
you know, even a year or two, but the next few years, certainly. There, there's also a lot of really questionable science and inflated claims around mycology too, as this rise of people that claiming that they can solve all the world problems. I don't know. I bet I imagine a lot of listeners caught this article, but the medium art, uh, sorry, Buzzfeed article about the mushroom uh, mycelium orb. Yes. The uh, mycorrhizal ball. Yeah. That, that it claimed to sequester enough carbon in your lawn to offset three automobiles, which is, fantasy science and was called out and 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 there would be a very uh, controversial person to bring on mushroom hour um, yeah and and called into question i mean it or it was a, a risk for christian schwartz who's an amazing naturalist hugely inspiring mycoeducator who basically tried to put it in check and be like hey this is fantasy science and then he got attacked and yeah that article lays it out brilliantly but very illustrative of kind of this push pull as things go mainstream there's not going to be you know, the small community, but I think we have to embrace that as something really positive. There's going to be two steps forward, one step back. I'm not the only artist who discovered how cool mushrooms are and is is making sculptures with them. And that's probably why I was reluctant for so long. It's like, there's already a lot of mush artists. The mushroom artist is a thing in the art world. They're like, oh, here comes another mushroom artist. So I was like, <laughs> I don't want to be one of those people. And so, you know, we we're so fixated as Americans on innovating and being the first and original. And like you said, you know, like I discovered that band first, but you can flip that equation and say, you know, it's great. Other people are interested in what I care most about and I get to talk with them. And, you know, this nerdy subject is no longer nerdy. I can just be excited. And this is a dinner party conversation. Cool. Let's, let's embrace that. Let's, let's like do this together and let other people do what we're doing already. And, win by numbers and do something really cool with that. I love that perspective. And I think more and more we should adopt that perspective that the more people getting into mushrooms, the better. And yeah, same thing with a mushroom podcast, right? I was reluctant to start. I was like, there's already great mushroom podcasts out there. There'll be a million more people, more experienced at interviewing all that. But you know what, if it's something you enjoy doing, just get into it, push mushrooms more and more into that mainstream sphere. Because if we really do believe that they hold the solutions to all these myriad problems, then we're going to need more and more brains and perspectives approaching this organism and figuring out how we can partner with it to achieve these replicable and consistent solutions that we're talking about. So yeah, that's that's a beautiful vision that you laid out there. And where do you think the future of mushroom cultivation is heading? I mean, we've talked about kind of the specter of big biotech and commercial ag and everything, but you know, someone who's caught kind of aware of that, but still got your ear to the ground on small scale cultivators and doing it yourself. You're in the mushroom cultivator ranks who's doing it professionally. What, what do you see as the future of cultivation uh, here in the U.S.? So, you know, I have to preface this with I, I'm relatively new to this. So I think there are sure. seasoned experts and people who have been farming mushrooms for over a decade that are listening to me like who is this guy like stop talking but (laughs) but as somebody who you know has these expectations going into mushroom farming and thinking what is possible i've noticed a couple of things and and i see sort of a shift happening around when we talk about permaculture and uh, biodiversity and farming that hasn't really shown up in urban mushroom indoor cultivation yet you know we have these coveted commercial grade cultures and then we chase them until they start to see senescence which is the sort of a breakdown in the 
the vigor of a of a culture, which is itself a very poorly understood and debated concept. You know, whether that the DNA is breaking down or whether we're just not providing ideal conditions or maintaining our cultures properly. And and Stamets in his cultivation book even kind of alludes to this that we would actually have more vigorous mushroom yields and cultures if we were able to have multi-culture, multi-spore ways of propagating mushrooms and not just a singular isolated culture that we just farm, you know, a thousand times and just bleach things so that like that one culture doesn't get sick. You know, if we've learned anything from, you know, monocultures, that that creates problems. And so I see more mycologists that are starting to try to figure that out. That is something that can be really effective. And I think people know that. And I think we're going to start to see more of that. I think Americans are less afraid of gourmet mushrooms, but there are a lot of edible varieties that we don't really have in the American appetite yet. You know, we it's great to see lion's mane show up, but, um, you know, there's a lot of things like bamboo mushrooms, a stinkhorn, you know, that mushrooms that are farmed and eaten in Southeast Asia, you know, that would be unthinkable to people that I meet at the farmer. Most people meet at the farmer's market, <laughs> maybe, maybe some people. So, you know, there's so many ways that we can diversify. There's going to be more than one mushroom farmer at the farmer's market, which is a really cool thing. And they're all going to have a different specialty. It's not just a mushroom farmer, but hey, you're the king oyster. That's your thing. You're the maitake person. And then just one last thing I, I, I have noticed is, you know, I think we're still caught in quantity over quality. Americans often get a lot of flack for their high supplementation. You know, it's a very American model of production that high nutrition, high yields, and just pump these giant flushes of oysters or what have you. <laughs> and then sort of uh, how do these shiitakes and oysters taste, you know, and how do they fair in the kitchen is something that is almost an afterthought. I mean, people, I'm not, people are aware of this there. We know the varieties quite differently, but how these things switch from alfalfa to soy, all of these things are, are, are something I think we'll start to see hone in, um, in our craft. I think we'll maybe hopefully move more towards like the wine industry where you have people that really specialize on certain notes and ingredients and substrates that produce something really unique. And it's not just how many mushrooms are you making each week, but what kind and how are you doing them? It's going to be really interesting. A fascinating conversation as kind of dovetails with what I'm hearing a lot about, about the evolving palate of the American and really kind of Western society's mushroom or fungus palate. You know, in Asia, they're so used to so many more species and they know kind of the different flavor notes. And here uh, people describe mushrooms as quote unquote earthy, but they actually have a lot of different notes to them. And I love bringing in that idea of what they're grown on and all that could affect that flavor. So it'll be interesting to follow that evolution of cultivation using principles like outrageous diversity and going away from monoculture, pairing that with this evolving palette when it comes to mushrooms and what people are going to end up demanding. Really kind of dynamic future that that you're laying out there that I think luckily leaves a lot of space for small and innovative cultivators who can do craft mushrooms. It doesn't always have to be, you know, the same boutique, quote unquote, boutique strains. Not everyone has to do black pearl. Someone might do a shiitake that's grown on something different. Or uh, I love that idea. A lot of potential. It's very new. We're, we're just, you know, you don't have to be in the industry to figure this out. YouTube is an incredible university. People like Eric Myers, Micro, 
of William Padilla Brown. These people are awesome. You know, this is really like for me, the backbone of this moment in Renaissance that we're having, you know, just as much as these giant farms, um, which are also, I think, for the most part, very um, indebted to the culture of giving back. And I would like to kind of extend that tradition. I think I have a ways to go until I feel that I've really taken my far enough to make that available. And I, I am kind of strategizing of what that's going to look like over the next few years. But I think we really have to to do that. And, and, and it's really exciting to see so many people get into it. Well, and I think you've just elucidated the concept that's going to help mycology and the burgeoning field of mushrooms navigate is this idea of reciprocity. If that becomes the core principle and it's about reciprocity, it's about erring on the side of being more open source than less open source, I think it's going to navigate to kind of that most positive future that we see with mushrooms instead of kind of this infighting between big corporations and patenting and all which obviously there's whole layers to those conversations as well. But I think those are great guiding principles, reciprocity being the core that I think so many of us resonate with and why we love the mycology community so much. Well, where can people support, or I guess the best question, where can people get your art? Because I want one, my wife wants one, everybody wants a mushroom chia pet. Can people get your art? Where can they find it? At, and same question for the farm as well. The the work in the studio right now, thank you. I, I The work in the studio is spoken for. I do have some upcoming projects and shows. I want to make those available for everyone, but we're this is sort of an evolving process. Maybe there'll be a lot more at some point when I really get this dialed in. So you can follow me on Instagram. Um, it's my name with my middle initial, Sam K, as in Kite, uh, Shoemaker, S-H-O-E-M-A-K-E-R. My website is uh, also my name, samkshoemaker.com. You can follow the farm at mycomyco, M-Y-C-O, M-Y-C-O farm. And then also mycomyco.farm for our website where we've got some cool recipes on there. A local chef in El Sereno, sort of a... Uh, You've heard a million times about the crabless crab cakes that you can make with lion's mane, but uh, my buddy Carlos came up with this incredible chilaquiles lion's mane recipe, which you should check out. It's really good. <laughs> you might have just given me what I'm eating for dinner tonight, so thank you for that. Definitely encourage everyone to check out the work, the art, the farm, I guess. And if you're in LA, how can people get your mushrooms from the farm? So I am at the Atwater Farmer's Market on Sunday mornings. It starts at 9, and my partner Elizabeth and I will be there, and we usually sell out by 11 a.m., so come early. Get there uh, early, best guys. Mushrooms in the first hour, so you know, hopefully at some point in the future we'll be able to scale this to a larger facility, but uh, i got to spin a lot of plates right now and got kind of a small basement, so uh, yeah, come say hi. You've got a lot of plates. You've got the artistic endeavor, the cultivation. They're feeding into each other. Like you said, you've got day jobs. We've talked about the future of the industry as a whole and these big concepts. But just leave us with you know any future plans for yourself, the farm, the art, the direction you want to take it, uh, as best you can, a synopsis of kind of how you want these projects to grow into the future. I think most of us are motivated by the things that we wanted when we were younger. And so for the younger me, that was just getting into this. I want to make either an ebook or something that teaches people or shows them how they can get started with myco materials. So that's that may take a minute to put together, but I think making that technology open source is 
is really overdue. You know, we I'm I'm happy to see Ecovative and these these industries popping up around mushroom packaging, but uh, good luck trying to um, get them to show you how they do it. <laughs> you right. know that that is uh, behind an industry that is inaccessible to most of us. So that that's not really on the uh, online educational community yet. There are some Facebook groups and some cool people doing things out there, but that's something I'd like to work on. I have some ideas, and I think. That science can be pushed so much more far beyond um, packaging materials, which are also great. Uh, so that, that's yeah. that's one of many ducks that I'm trying to get into the line. Well, that's really exciting. And I love to think of these things as like cottage industries, mycology as a cottage industry accessible to all, much like gardening and horticulture is for people. It's like, why isn't mycology something that we can all bring into our lives and disciplines that we can use to improve our lives just on that small individual basis. Yeah. Start cottage industries, maybe making micro materials for your neighborhood. That's for me, that's kind of my utopian vision is yeah. Having it more open source. Everyone's using these things for a sustainable decentralized future. And I think that would be an amazing contribution to that goal. Yeah. To wrap things up, I'll, Ask the three questions I love to ask all my guests. You've given us some unique insights and perspectives thus far. So I have a feeling you'll have some erudite and interesting answers for us. No pressure though. And the first question is, what is a mushroom or fungus that you love and why? It can be for any reason, the artistic sensibility, how it tastes, how it grows, but a mushroom that you love and why? Uh, so I probably won't pronounce the Latin name properly, but uh, Merasmius plicatilis is a not not a um, really popular wild mushroom it's not a mushroom you can eat it doesn't really have any application as far as i know but it's it's a mushroom one of the first mushrooms i fell in love with and i just i remember the day identifying this mushroom on a hike in la and just feeling like i was seeing the whole universe just kind of like spin in front of me and i think i think it's a wonderful mushroom and i actually almost named the farm erasmus just out of love for this genus and this mushroom. And then it was pointed out to me, luckily, very early from a friend that Merasmius is one letter off from Merasmus, which is a disease of malnutrition. So starting a food-related business where you are one letter off from a Google image search of children dying of starvation is not a good look. <laughs> but you need I that kind of branding advice, yeah. Yeah, so, but Merasmius picletus, I think it's a wonderful, it's a little parasol mushroom. It's got these beautiful gills and almost like a cherry stem that you want to like put in your mouth and tie a knot with. <laughs> um, so that's that's my answer. That's my mushroom. Merasmius are some of the most delicate, beautiful mushrooms out there. So excited to go Google that one and check that one out. And then what has this relationship you've developed? I hinted at it earlier. You have kind of unique relationship in that you're cultivating, growing mushrooms. You're obviously eating mushrooms. You're also conveying meaning with mushrooms through art. And so what is that relationship given to you? Lessons it's taught you, spiritual awakenings, ecological understandings, whatever it is, what is that relationship given to you? The more you look at something, the less you understand about it, the more questions you have. And I really love this about mushrooms and working with mushrooms is I, I never run out of things to occupy myself with. Uh, spiritually, psychologically, they're, they're just so rich. And I, I think mushrooms have given me a lot to think about. And that's, that's the greatest gift. So, 
yeah, pay attention to mushrooms. And it doesn't have to be mushrooms. If, if cactuses are your thing, if it's knitting, if it's vacuuming your house, like that's that's you. For me, it's mushrooms. But look for that infinite well of questions and curiosity that gets spawned as you spend more and more time with something. I think that's really, really well said. And I think mushrooms and fungi do that for so many of us. You have one question, you think you find an answer and it leads to like 20 more. Uh, so everybody find that thing in your life, uh, whether it's mushrooms or not. And that will keep you on an endless life of an endless life of questing is asking questions. So uh, the final question looking into the future, and we've done some of this already, what are your highest aspirations for how our society can evolve or change for the better as we collectively deepen our understanding and relationship with fungi? Well, let's start with understanding. <laughs> we've got a lot to learn. <laughs> you know, I, I, I don't, I, I used to think that I knew what a world that has a, a meaningful collaboration with mushrooms look like, but I don't think anybody has an answer. I think we have a, a long way to go. And I think we need to start with a lot of research and a lot of deep observation to get us to where we need to go. So just enthusiasm alone is, is going to get us to an unknowable destination. Moving goalpost. I love that. If it can encourage us all to have more enthusiasm and strive for more understanding, that's, those are always going to be good things. Those are always going to be good things. Well, Sam, thank you so much for coming on the show, sharing your art, sharing your admittedly uh, self-admittedly nascent kind of mushroom cultivation journey but i think it's really inspiring and i think a lot of us can find ourselves in your story and you've left us with really some amazing lessons learned and insights and perspectives so yeah just appreciate you coming on it's been a pleasure to speak with you thank you so much for having me on